Hey everyone, welcome to Single Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I am a journalist and podcaster and uh, newsletter guy. Uh, the newsletter is at jessesingle.substack.com. This is sort of an offshoot of that, so you might, um, might find it interesting if you like this show. I also host a show called Blocked and Reported with Katie Herzog, so make sure to check that out too. Uh, this episode... Um, mostly going to be taking your calls. I wanted to just, I wanted to, I hope everyone reads this piece in The Intercept by Ryan Grimm, uh, Restorative Injustice, the Implosion of a Democratic Socialist Campaign. It's this really sad story about a politician running for uh, Montgomery County, um, that's in Maryland, uh, County Council. Brandy Brooks, uh, sort of a, she's running for County Council. There's this very ridiculous scandal involving her and a staffer. And this one piece just sort of highlights all these trends that worry me about uh, just this sort of culture of weird therapeutic talk about witch hunts. Uh, it's just a very weird story that's hard to sum up, but I, I think everyone should read it. Um, the only other thing I, I want to briefly touch on, and, and we can maybe talk about it uh, when I take calls, is this whole conversation over like protesting in a Supreme Court justice's house, um, which I'm sort of torn on. I, I really feel weird about outlawing the sort of activism that can make powerful people's lives a little bit more uncomfortable. Uh, I think one of the ways people get away with stuff is is they're shielded from the consequences of their actions so you know if you're the ceo of a company that runs horrific factory farms uh and you never have to deal with sort of the consequences of that i don't know if people legally protest outside your house as their is their first amendment right uh, I, i'm just i have trouble seeing like what the principled case is against that i i guess as always the problem is people want to adopt completely different norms for one side versus the other. Like I know for a fact that a lot of the people celebrating this protest would be not only denouncing it, but treating it as violent if it had targeted a liberal lawmaker. And, and, and I think that bad faith is so transparent and screams so loudly and everyone knows it's the case that it maybe makes it hard to have a more principled conversation about this stuff. But, um, at the end of the day, we're a country with like a lot of disagreement about a lot of stuff, and we're not going to be able to have one set of rules for one side and, and another for another side. That seems pretty obvious, but you see tons of people arguing implicitly for just that. All right, first call, AA triple B, A squared B cubed. That's right. Thank you. Um, on the, the protest thing, it kind of reminds me of a thing that was big a bit ago, which was... Um, throwing milkshakes at people. I don't know if you remember that. Andy No got uh, milkshaked. Yeah, and there was sort of these, I think an Australian politician got milkshaked. Uh, I can kind of, where I come from it, on it, is I kind of see where you're talking about. It's like, you know, it's not kind of like milkshake thing. not that bad. I get why you would want to do it. Um, but where I come down on it is like, I don't think it stops there. I, I, I don't get the impression that this is sort of an end point. I think that this is sort of an escalation. And I think it will keep going towards more and more. So I think there's, there's value in sort of drawing a hard line and saying, no, we're not doing anything beyond this point. We have sort of civility. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. So throwing a milkshake at someone is a crime. It's, it's a you know, misdemeanor assault or whatever the technical crime is. Um, I do think that the more we have people showing up 
outside people's houses, the more of a threat of violence there is. And, and if people want to make that argument, I'm sympathetic to it. But it's just hard. I don't know. And, and any expression of people's rights as speakers and as protesters, you could make that slippery slope argument. So maybe, maybe they should just be like normatively opposed. Maybe Democrats should say like, look, we're furious what's happening here, but we just, we're, we're worried that this will escalate things. Um, I do think that's a good faith argument. There's just part of me that wants to like retain the right to do this sort of thing. Because like I'm saying, the powerful people are often shielded from, from the consequence of what they do. But I guess what you're saying is a pretty fair counterpoint. Like maybe maybe it's worth shielding them because the alternative is more and more ratcheting up of tensions. And, and if things do get violent, it's much more likely some protester will get hurt or killed than the person being protested who's likely to have beefed up security. Yeah, I think it's kind of a value in sort of setting a hard line saying we have a, a line between our personal lives and our sort of civil conversations. You can disagree with me, but it doesn't mean you have to sort of make my life like really difficult because people start trying to do that to other people. I think we have sort of an escalation where things become worse. But I think you know, your concerns are valid. I don't think you have an unreasonable position on this. But I wanted to uh, call and ask you potentially very uh, controversial question. And you don't have to answer this question. Um, and I, I've looked it up. I don't think I've ever you comment on this. It's unfortunately about trans stuff again, which I know you're tired of. But um, the, when you look at trans stuff, every so often you, you run into this thing the, uh, the bland charity and typology, which is the idea is like there's some people who are autogynophilic, meaning that they their motivation towards being trans or something might call trans would be towards um, they're attracted to the idea of themselves as a woman. Um, and this is guy Ray Blanchard came up with this idea. And it's been called sort of transphobic and, you know, uh, conversion therapy type. Thing. Um, I don't really know a ton about the science behind it, but I know you're a person in that scientific question. Do you think that there's any, is there any uh, consideration about this being true? Is it bigoted? Is it, uh, you know, is it pseudoscience? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the, the first thing I ever wrote that touched on these issues was a um, essay about uh, Alice Drager's book, Galileo's Middle Finger. She dives deep into this controversy. The, the Blanchard typology is basically, it only concerns trans women, so so male to female transitioners. His theory is that there's two types of trans people. One is um, what he would call homosexual males, as in natal males, who, you know, it, it's it, for them it's just easier to sort of live in the world as a trans person than as a really effete uh, male. So they transition in part because of like cultural influence and pressures. And then the other, who who tends to transition later, often after having um, you know, had a family uh, or sired children are people who are autogynophilic. Uh, I'm just muting your mic because I'm seeing hearing a little feedback. Um, and yeah, in this case, it, it can be seen almost as a sexual orientation. Uh, you're attracted to the idea of yourself as a woman. This is very controversial. It's controversial for both legitimate reasons and reasons that I'm less convinced by. I, I'm not convinced that it's pathologizing to say that someone's identity is tied up in their sexual orientation because isn't that often the case? Why, why would we draw a clear line between them? Um, so I, I don't know. My gloss on the controversy is there's definitely some people who say that the autogynophilia idea applies to them and it captures their experience. I think Anne Lawrence is the most famous example of that she's a, I believe, psychologist who's herself a trans woman who identifies with uh, as an autogynophilia, auto, as autogynophilic. Um, I also think that 
it's not useful to stigmatize the idea because there's a subset of like younger people questioning their gender who might find that identity useful or that idea useful and there's no there shouldn't be any shame involved with it it's it's a sexual orientation why would any sexual orientation that doesn't hurt anyone bring shame does that um i want to get to the next caller does that make sense as a general gloss i agree with you i mean it's not clear to me why even if it was true why it should be considered full. however i mean the history of like the um like race movement is sort of pushing for acceptance via not being considered um sexual not viewing it as sort of this perversion but viewing it as you know wanting to be a part of a family etc so i think that makes sense from a rights perspective but i want to know is where, where do you come down on the science of it is it is it uh legitimate is it should it be considered to be true scientifically or yeah i mean i, I the question of whether i don't think I haven't looked closely enough. I, I think it's unlikely that we can neatly capture everyone's experiences with, with these two categories in terms of whether autogynophilia is real in some cases. Uh, yeah, I think it absolutely is. I, I don't think there's that many trans people who would deny it. I think what they don't like is, I'm of course speaking for them, but but they don't like being called that or having it be weaponized or the assumption that everyone can be put in that bucket. So I think the controversy is like almost as much about how it's used and maybe overestimates of its prevalence and the existence of the thing itself. I'm not saying no one denies it exists, but I, I think people understand it's a thing. Fair enough. Okay, good answer. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Austin, what's up? Sort hey, of pop. Sorry about that. Can you no, no worries. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, so, a blocked and reporter subscriber, first-time caller. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks. Um, I'm the person who uh, asked Katie... If you're, if you were an Indian single or a Jewish single, uh, <laughs> I did, I think we're the only Jewish singles. I'm not aware of anyone I'm not related to who's a Jewish single. Have you been? <laughs> yeah, like that's true. Uh, um, but, but uh, my question is actually. Uh, so I recently tried to channel some of my thoughts, and I'm not going to say frustrations, but uh, you know, uh, some of my emotions. <laughs> And uh, sort of my, my views on the direction of the left. And um, I think that you and Katie both openly consider yourselves part of the left in some like tangential capacity. And so what, what I was wondering was whether you'd considered maybe more overtly promoting groups that are trying to move the, the, the activist uh, class more in a class-based egalitarian direction away from these uh, sort of like woke Twitter type ideas. Because uh, when I started to actually explore, like for example, DSA, I found that there's a group called Class Unity that's like old and has been around forever and kind of is more in line with what what I think the DSA used to stand for. And, you know, uh, when I was in uh, early in my college journey, I, uh, you know, I met Wobblies, like um, what's that? The um, International Workers of the World, I think, uh, if they're called that, or maybe I'm messing, messing something up because it's been like 20 plus years since I've used that term. But there were all of these like more Marxist um, and even to not use the word Marx, but more like Ro Rooseveltian type um, groups that uh, existed. And maybe if we could invest energy in in taking people from you know, I think who have clustered around, uh, uh, you know, personalities like yours, like Matt, uh, Taibi, like e even like, you know, sort of more righty, but uh, libertarian leading 
folks. Like, uh, if you look at the the Venn diagram between Taibi, you, you guys, and and even like the fifth column, I'd say it's like sixty seventy percent, right? And I think a lot of those people are like more in line with populist um, thinking around economics and policy. And um, I was just wondering if you've thought about that, if you like, if you know of any groups besides. Um, you know, the class unity group, for example, that exists. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of people thinking along those lines. I, I frequently reference uh, Freddie DeBoer and Matt Bruning as two of them. Um, in a recent newsletter, I talked about an essay by a guy, I'm going to butcher his name. He's a Georgetown professor, Olufemi Taiwo. Uh, he has a great essay called Being in the Room Privilege, Elite Capture and Epistemic Deference. Uh, he coincidentally had a book come out today that I have. I'm looking around my room now. I have it. Oh, there it is. Elite Capture uh, is a book. He, he's a lefty and maybe a Marxist, right. and he wrote about elite capture, and it ties into the identitarianism stuff. So, yeah, I'm all for talking about that stuff. I also had a guy from um, uh, Class Unity on this show, if you look in the archives. So, yeah, I'm definitely de- – I, I, I like the idea of focusing more on positive stuff. I, I find the whole – anti-woke thing sometimes gets to be too negative and a bit of an obsession. And, and there's an element of strange bedfellows. I mean, I, I like and have met all the fifth column guys, but I think a lot of them are more, much more libertarian um, than lefties. I, I'm still very much a lefty in terms yeah, of the economic I mean, if policies. If you can actually get to the conversation about economics, right? All of a sudden, yeah, yeah. It's a much different conversation. But yeah. I mean, I, and I like, I respect all of the anti-woke like stuff that's been put to paper, like John McCorder's work. Glenn Lowry's work, but like now that it's all out there, right? Like I think it's time. Yeah. For people like minded to at least find ways, find outlets. Yeah, I, I think I Olafemi Taiwo is a good like. There's a subset of people who just have like unimpeachable credentials as lefties. I think there's going to be moments of annoyance because I think people are realizing how off the rails some stuff has, has gone. So there's going to be people like writing books and, and doing big Atlantic articles about stuff we were saying on Stubsack uh, in 2019 because this has been obvious for a while. But I'll, uh, that's okay. The, I'll, I'd rather have more people talking about it. But yeah, no, I think you're making a good point and we should focus more on the positives and, and ways to turn people back toward uh, you know discussion of class basically. All right. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for taking my call, Jesse. Thanks for calling in and for listening, Chewy. What's up? Hey, Jesse. Um, hey, I just want to start off first of all by saying I really, really liked your answer there on autogynophilia in regards to why 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 should anyone like really feel offended by the concept that their sexual identity. Um, or their sexual, you know, orientation is wrapped up into their their own identity. Like I certainly know that uh, my sexual orientation is a huge part of my identity, and it's a really positive, um, a really positive thing in that. So I really liked that that answer of yours. Um, yeah. The other thing. So the next thing I wanted to say was I I wonder where. So you mentioned that you think that there would be a lot of like bad faith outcry if, for instance politicians on the left were were protested at their homes um in the way that um like alito or kavanaugh i think it was is, is like being protested I, I i wonder what evidence you have for that for instance there was a good um couple of posts going around by a couple of political scientists i think matt glassman who noted that you know folks like pelosi and schumer have had protests at their homes for years and there's I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't remember a huge, giant outcry against it. I'm a big, firm believer that as soon as you're, you know, a political uh, 
your person in politics, right? You're a politician. That part of the, the deal is that you open yourself up to political protest, including at your own home. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think like when I hear arguments that, well, we should maybe just not do that because it pulls away from civility. I, I think we're trying to divorce the idea that emotion is a part of politics. Um, I think the classic example is like um, ACT UP, you know, pulling a condom over Jesse Holmes' house, right? A really powerful emotional yeah. um, protest against a politician that, that you know, got a lot of news and, and whatnot and, and in some at small amount at least helped turn the tide. Um, I, I think that I used to think, like a lot of people, because I did collegiate debate, that the best room was room for just, you know, sterile d- political discussion that divorced emotion. And I have to admit, I ruined a lot of relationships with friends on Facebook because they didn't learn in that way, in the way that I learned in that way. And I was starting to have sterile political discussions that, like, I ended up really, <laughs> like, pissing people off. Um, so I, I wonder what like evidence you really have that there would be such an outcry um, if it was happened up to, to politicians on the left when it has in fact happened to politicians on the left. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a fair point. Um, and ACT UP was actually an example I meant to mention to the first mm-hmm. caller about. Um, you know, they did a lot of. I think they more did intense protests at at people's offices or the CDC. Uh, although they, I mean, like you said, Jesse Helms. Um, I. My recent experience with this is the way people covered um, some of these uh, school board meetings um, mm-hmm. about like CRT and such. And I did sense there was a bit of a tendency to exaggerate. And in one case, like this pissed off parent who was pissed off for complicated reasons, they made it sound like these crazy conservatives were showing up and being violent. And the Biden Justice Department sent out a letter about the violence. I just think there's a general tendency to overstate the other side's actions and and to inadvertent well maybe intentionally ramp up tensions by being like those people over there are going to kill us so i just think in the current climate um if you saw the equivalent of this it, it would get covered in that matter and you often see like conservatives get covered as though they're inherently violent but you know that's a good rebuttal that of course, over the years, for these like very long-standing old uh, liberal senators and congresspeople, there's been, there have been protests at their house yeah. houses. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Patrick, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. This Tuesday, right? Yep. I think so. I don't know. It's one of those days. Some sometimes when you when it's the middle of the week, they all kind of blur. They together, really do. Which kind of ongoing uh encroaching madness or just a busy work week but uh so i kind of wanted to talk to you about the protesting outside of people's homes because we do have it happen where i live uh in oakland the mayor's been protested by people outside the home before they usually disperse i think the problem i have with it is just on a thing of whether it should happen or not i mean as long as there's no kind of like the protest turns into a kind of parade type thing where there's a potential like fire hazard or safety hazard, like permitting all that kind of thing that you normally have to go through. But I don't think any new law should happen. I guess my question would be whether or not we should be doing it is if it's a good expense of time and resources. And being a lawyer, something about protesting judges just feels weird to me, where the idea that you're trying to protest someone to get them to kind of change their mind on an issue. I know I'm a bit Pollyannish in terms of believing that judges are supposed to be immune from that, and that's why they're supposed to be sequestered from it, whereas we don't want kind of 
individual decision makers at these levels being able to be cowed by this kind of pressure. Realistically, I just think it's a waste of time and resources because I don't think it's going to work. Uh, I don't think anything that these uh, judges, especially Kavanaugh, have indicated isn't going to do anything other than kind of make them burrow in their heels. They have a kind of martyr complex where I feel like it's only going to embolden them. So I think if we're kind of wasting time and resources, uh, we need to waste it in a way of which we can actually get things done. But I, that's kind of my more issue with kind of progressive politics right now is that I don't know that people are strategizing in the best way to actually get things done. Yeah, I mean, SCOTUS judges are in a weird place where we're supposed to pretend they're somehow apolitical. Everyone knows they're not apolitical. Um, I, I will say when I saw the video of the protesters on the street uh, in D.C., I did I had the same question of you as you of like, what will this accomplish? And I, the question of whether you're getting bang for the buck for any form of activism or any messaging is really complicated. I could see this backfiring and just generating more backlash, but it's also a really weird situation because what, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to get them to revisit and revise a draft opinion that already circulated? It's, it's legitimately unprecedented. I do think more broadly speaking, there's there's just this issue of oftentimes people not thinking through what their activism is trying to accomplish. And I, I think we've seen some examples of that, especially in 2020 and 2021. I'm thinking of this like sort of weird mass shaming of – I think it was the Minneapolis mayor when he wouldn't commit to defunding or abolishing the police on the spot. All these activists – lining the street, booing him, trying to shame him out of there, stuff like that. I just, I don't think it's helpful, but I think in the moment there may be things get emotional and people don't think through what is helpful. They don't think things through tactically, which strikes me as important. Well, I would agree with that. And I think that kind of speaks to the failure of the moment is that I can't imagine a time when like all the forces aligned to kind of support a moment. And I don't think very much legislation actually passed in support of that moment. I think it's because of that idea where, you need to have some kind of strategizing and planning behind your kind of emotion. Otherwise, it's just kind of, I guess it's there is a point to catharsis, and I guess it does make people feel good in the moment. But if it doesn't lead to long-term change, you haven't done anything. Yeah, yeah, and I think people can get addicted to the theatrics and the catharsis. Uh, yeah, I, I would just be reiterating what you just said, but I agree completely. Yeah. Uh, so I guess in terms of that, what would you think would be a good plan kind of going forward? Like, I know the primary concern is that for the the two major concerns are whether or not the midterms happen and they retake the House, House and Senate would be the worst case scenario for a major ban. And just small term ban would be figuring out different kind of political networks to kind of get things in place. Do you, do you see any kind of or at least heard of anything from backroom channels about what's been going on mobilizing that kind of effort. I know DeBoer mentioned something about like an underground uh, railroad of medicine and pills that might start happening, but that's going to have to be underground if things get illegal in those states. Yeah, it's not my area, so I, I'm not. I'm really not sure. I just I, I would think this would, as terrible as it is, redound to the benefit of Democrats because uh, it might be a case of conservatives like the the dog that doesn't know what to do when it catches the mail truck. Uh, conservatives have been able to rail against abortion for a very long time very effectively because there was this sort of safety net in place where that really limited the severity of the laws that could pass. Without that, and with Democrats able to campaign against that, I would think it would have a big effect on the midterms. I, I already saw one or two 
people more in the know than me saying that that might be overstated, that voters, the average voter, the sort of voter who could have an effect in a red state doesn't matter. But um, yeah, all I can say is it'll be very interesting to see uh, and anxiety provoking too. All right. Well, hope you have a day, Jesse. Thanks, Patrick. You too. Justin, what is up? <laughs> hey, you're coming in very, very soft. Is there a way to get louder? Oh, almost definitely. Try to say something. Hopefully that's okay. No, it's still way too soft. Um, I might just take the next caller, and then I'll, I'll give you another shot and you can try to mess around with the settings it's just coming in like a whisper is that okay Humpty Justin we'll try to get back to you next what's up Humpty hey Jesse hey um I uh I had a little something to say on that uh on the protesting at uh justice's houses thing um sure like I think uh I, it, it, it's not such a big deal to me, the protests outside of the justices' houses, because the issue is one of national policy on abortion. Yeah. But I've been very troubled by uh, a lot of the protesting going on, um, tar- targeting and directed at judges and district attorneys uh, when it comes to like um, charging police officers uh, with murder, that sort of thing. Um, you mean like protests basically saying that they're going too soft on cops and stuff like that? Right. Well, you know, where it seemed very clear that protesters caused, uh, district attorneys to change their charging decisions. Um, and where judges appear to have gone harder on sentencing, um, because of protesting there was the uh, uh what was the the case um where the uh the cop thought she was pulling out her taser and and shot the young man uh i know the one in, yeah i know the way you mean i forget the name and there was you know um you know the judge in that case um decided to go kind of light on the police officer's sentence and her voice was shaking and people were like oh she she's so upset for this poor cop but she doesn't, um, uh, you know, she's not thinking about the victim. But the in that case, the district attorney had, like, upped the charges. And there were protesters outside of the courthouse every day, which I feel like intimidates the jurors, the judge, everyone. And I felt like the judge's voice was shaking, not out of sympathy for the cop, but out of fear, um, you know, that what she was about to do <laughs> with the sentence was going to upset the the crowd outside. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of, I think that's a troubling trend when you start, it, lo- it starts to look a lot like mob justice, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying and you'd like to think that the justice system sort of proceeds, um, unmolested by, by the people yelling outside. But I, you know, in a in a country with free speech, I mean, I think this just might be an example of like, it's the worst system except for all the alternatives. Um, what what would it mean to say that we disapprove of people publicly protesting the way the justice system operates, especially it, given how? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, it's. I, I it's it's a hard. 
balance to hit. But, you know, I'm, I also was thinking of the Ahmad Arbery case, you know, where you've got the, the three men who killed Ahmad Arbery. They're sentenced to two of them are sentenced to life sentence plus 20 years or something like that without chance of parole. The other one is like uh, a life sentence with chance of parole after 40 years or something. And then they get tried also for hate crimes in federal court. And they reached a plea agreement with the prosecutors in that case. And they were going to, they were each going to do like 20 some years in federal prison first and then go to state prison. And Arbery's mother objected. Um, And basically the reason she articulated for objecting was that they would be doing their, their uh, federal time first. And the federal prison was a little, you know, had slightly less inhumane conditions than the state prison. And the, and the judge, you know, uh, threw out the plea agreement because of that, um, which yep. there was no, I, I just, you know, it seemed like a totally reasonable plea deal under the circumstances. And I, I feel like the judge, that no judge would have ever thrown out that plea deal, but for all the, the this bright political spotlight. And I feel like the rationale for, for the mother rejecting it wasn't one that, you know, as, as like horrible as the crime was, it's really not a rationale that ought to have been honored, you know? I mean, yeah. our prisons are, are disgustingly inhumane. Even the federal ones, which are nicer than the state ones, are inhumane. And it's just, uh, and I don't, I don't believe that the sort of inhumanity of our prisons ought to be, you know, considered a built-in part of the punishment that... That. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I will say what what's interesting there is I, I do think it was like conservatives who really built up the idea of like the victims' rights movements, where like the families of murder <laughs> yeah, victims should yeah. have a have a major role in like you know uh, influencing the punishment. Um, look, I, I I I'm with you in general that it's not good when these cases get politicized, but. It, in the Aubrey case, it seems like it's partly the case getting politicized and partly the question of like what the role of um, the victim's family should be. And I, I just I don't have good or simple answers to those questions other than being with you that the politicization yeah. of the justice system is bad. Well, the left really, you know, uh, in in these cases, you know, like there's all the the movement for restorative justice and everything like that. But you know, when it turns it's very into, sele- it's very selective, defended, selectively applied. Yes, yeah. yes. When it's a defendant that that they don't like, then it's they want you know uh, the worst possible penalty that can be imposed yeah. every single time. Yeah. Um, very good points, Humpty. I appreciate the call. Okay, let's Thank jump you. to Justin and see if his mic is working. Uh, Justin, give it a shot. Hey Jesse, appreciate it. Am I better? Yep, better now. Great, thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, it's the only thing everyone's talked about the whole time, pretty much. So I'll keep going with the courts if that's okay with you. Sure. Man. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, the, the, I think if you think about like, hey, where should these kind of protest activities be taking place? Like, where should we agree it's okay? And I think if we think like, would it be all right if they were outside of a juror's house? I think we would all recognize that, hey, that seems abusive, right? The, the point of these bodies, jurors and judges, um, is that they are kind of shielded from the consequences of their actions. I think um, we don't want uh, we don't want a court system that is running on public opinion. That's I think 
a bad thing. Like I, I'm not even, I don't even really even like the idea of electing judges truthfully. Cause I, I think that that Agreed. is just like, you're, you're, you're pushing in a bias, right. By doing that when really we want them to be working on the law. And I think we focus on that then. And if we put that as a priority, then, you know, the law becomes as much as it's supposed to be this neutral thing. And I know that we don't really actually believe that that's what's going on in the Supreme Court. They all are, you know, they have motivations, I think. I wouldn't say that they're political necessarily in the sense that they're trying to advance the goals of the Democrat or the Republican Party at any given moment, but more just that they have their own internal ideals that, you know, probably are guiding some of their um, conclusions rather than thought process necessarily. Uh, what, yeah. what do you think about this? Like, uh, consider the juror. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, protesting outside a juror's house would just, like, the courts would step in and get that juror somewhere else because that's such a no-no. Um, the question of why that's a no-no and protesting outside a judge's house isn't is complicated. I mean, my understanding is the Supreme Court will, in their decisions, reference like society's views of x or y and like what people think so it, it isn't totally divorced from like where the country's at and i think it's this really unsteady relationship to sort of popular opinion but i don't think it's it they consider themselves to be like totally divorced from it um i think with with jurors we have this ideal that is more tightly enforced that they should any external influence from outside the courtroom should not be a part of their decision-making process. We, I think with judges, we, we don't think that we trust them to either be above that or, or, or something like that. So I think that's like, that's how I'd get over, um, or resolve that analogy. I just, I don't think anyone expects Kavanaugh to be shielded from the outside world, the way, uh, jurors are shielded from the outside world, rightly or wrongly. Right. And I don't think jurors are. Um, the reason we do that, like, if you show up outside of a juror's house and all you're doing is holding up a sign that says, you know, um, I'm pro-abortion, let's say it's an abortion case for whatever reason, um, that would be labeled immediately on its face, juror intimidation. And I think that the same logic applies to the judges in, in this case, where we don't want that to be what is driving decisions. And I, I think in this case of the Supreme Court, these are all people of, you know, a certain fortitude and, and comfort, let's say, where this probably won't actually change uh, the way that they decide on this, um, which I think is a plus, not due to the outcome, just due to, I think the process is actually the more important thing here. And when it comes to the process, I, I think, you know, further politicizing stuff, further allowing for the norm of this is, you know, again, pushes us in the wrong direction from, I think, the things that have served the country much better in the past, right? It's not like you can't talk about it. Just don't do it there. That that um, seems like it's stepping over a clear line to me. Yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. I mean, um, it's just a question of how you balance that with the fact that people have First Amendment rights to, to protest there. But um, yeah, I get what you're saying. I think that's a, a strong version of the argument. Thank you, Justin. All right. Thank you, man. Jamie's going to have to be the last one uh, for today, but I'll be doing this again soon. This is the good news. Jamie, go ahead. Hey, Justin, can you hear me? I can. Awesome. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I don't have anything like crazy, uh, like smart to say. So <laughs> I'm sorry for being like the last call. Um, but 
I, I do have a couple quick questions for you. So, uh, first of all, I am, um, like you, I am from Massachusetts. And uh, I was wondering how you, uh, how deep you think the Celtics are going to go in the playoffs. This this series has been so exhausting because every game is so <laughs> brutal, and that the number of people hitting the floor yesterday. I I basically uh, I should not even I don't have the expertise to make predictions. I, I think if we can get through Milwaukee, there's a very good chance we can beat Miami. Um, and. I know Phoenix is very good on paper. I'm more if we did somehow get to the finals, which you know I shouldn't even be speculating. I I would be more worried about Golden State than Phoenix. Actually, I just think Golden State uh, offers more matchup problems than Phoenix does. Um, so yeah, I, I I'm I would say I put our odds at getting through this series at sixty five percent, and then if we get through this series, I I I put money on us beating Miami. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm probably... Also, I jumped the gun Boston. by assuming Miami will advance, but I think they will. <laughs> I, I'm probably slightly less optimistic about uh, them getting out of this out of this round, but um, it's definitely... I mean, I think I definitely think they could beat Miami if if Miami were to advance and the Celtics were to advance. I mean, I'm admittedly, I'm more of like a... I'm more of a hockey guy, so I am completely fixated on the Bruins series and just hating the, the, the uh, Carolina hurricanes, like with every fiber of my being. <laughs> unfortunately um, on that, so, on that, I am completely ignorant, unfortunately. I know. So that's like, that's pretty much like taking up all like the real estate inside my head as far as sports <laughs> goes, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's crazy. It's good time here. Fun time. Definitely. Springtime and playoff well. basketball. Yeah. Anything else, Jamie? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the, I guess the the other question I have is, um, so I have I have a young I have a daughter who just turned four, and so you know she's going to be going to school soon, um, you know, and I and I listen to a lot of different podcasts. Like I'm a, you know, I'm a huge. Uh, I listen to Blocked and Reported. Uh, uh, big fan, by the way. Uh, thanks for all the work that you do. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you know, I'm really I, I I'm I'm big into the fifth column too, and. Uh, you know, like the, uh, the sort of like sounding the alarm about uh, like woke agendas in schools is sort of has me a little bit concerned, I guess. And I mean, I, you know, I know, um, I don't know. Do you, do you see, do you see a, a, a path to sort of discourse around you know, sensitive social issues getting any less toxic? Or do you think that it's just going, we're just going to be like in this fucking, you know, yeah. hellscape dump fire for the, for the rest of mankind until we all just explode. Um, I have some hope. I mean, I just think there's been some pushback and, and it's, it's become a louder and louder conversation. I know the fifth golem guys have some kids in, um, Matt Welch at least has kids in the New York school system and there's, there's just, they get crazy emails and flyers and stuff. But I, I just think there's like a natural ceiling on how far this stuff can go. Cause so many people disagree with it. And a lot of it comes across as very knee jerk radical. So I could definitely understand your concern of having a kid enter the school system, but I, I still think most schools are just operating in their normal, incompetent, inefficient ways without there being a lot of like indoctrination. Um, but, you know, I can totally understand why to keep an eye on that. But, yeah, overall, I'm hopeful that it's going to get better. Yeah, I mean, that's like my my, you know, my biggest hope for my daughter is just 
like incompetence in her school system as opposed to like indoctrination of any kind yeah. really because you know I, I want her to be able to form her own opinions but uh yeah i mean like i you know i, I still live in in mass and so obviously i mean it's it's a very 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 blue area um and it's you know i feel like like all my all my friends are like big into um you know super like all they're all super lefties like you know, economically and socially. And I just, it, it seems like no one is sort of play, pushing back on any claims, which are clearly sensationalizing real issues. Yeah. Um, it's a problem. And, Who, and no like, one wants I to speak up. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just say no one wants to speak up because it's not, it's not fun to speak up. Oh yeah, no, I don't have the balls to say anything. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna push back. But like, it's just, it's you know, it's uh, I don't know, it's it's concerning to me, I guess. And and I mean, like, I it might get to a point where I, you know, I feel like I have to be more more vocal about you know, like like my reservations about the way things are are trending. But I hope, I hope before it gets to that point, um, you know, things sort of calm down a little bit. But I mean, you know, I'm I don't. I'm hopeful, but I can't say I'm super optimistic, I guess. If that makes yeah, sense. I don't blame you. I, I, I'm not that confident in my prediction. I just, I see um, some good signs that things are loosening up a little bit, I think. But um, anyway, thank you for the call and go Celtics and go Bruins. Yeah, thanks, dude. Definitely. And thank you for listening. Um, all right. That was really good. Really good comments and questions. Uh as always, I would ask that if you like the show, you just spread the word about it and spread the word about my various other things, the newsletter, the podcast. Uh, you can always reach out to me if you have questions or comments. And I think that's it. I'll probably be doing another one of these, I don't know, Thursday-ish. Uh, I've got some travel coming up this weekend. But I hope everyone else has a nice day. It is uh, very beautiful here in Brooklyn. I'm hoping to get back outside later and hoping where you are, it is the same and that you can do the same. Farewell.